Does it seem possible that December 25th is just two weeks away? Seems like the year has gone by awfully fast. For some of you, that means uh, you're getting starting to get anxious, starting to get worried about buying Christmas presents and getting all of that done. And for some of you, you just think, wow, I have at least 12 or 13 more days till I have to even think about it. I'm not sure what this season has been like for you, but hectic is probably a good way to describe it, as we're used to in this time of year. And I want to ask you a question concerning the matter of December the 25th. December the 25th is a day in which most of the world is talking about Christmas, Um And the question I want to ask you is, was Jesus born on December the 25th? Well, that that starts a murmuring, you know, because of course Jesus was born on December 25th, some might say. Of course he wasn't born on December 25th, some might say. And there's a lot of history and people that, you know, study that and argue back and forth. And my answer to that is possibly... Possibly. There's a 1 in 365 chance that Jesus was born on December the 25th. Now, if you're new to Northside or new to Churches of Christ, uh, you might think it seems a little different in here. There's, there's not, you know, where's the Christmas trees and the wreaths and the candles, and I see no mention of uh, a Christmas Eve service. Uh, what is that all about? Well, uh, churches that kind of follow what we call the liturgical calendar observe something in about the four Sundays before Christmas, and they call that Advent. The word Advent is from a Latin word that simply means the coming. And they, 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 the meaning of it, they say, is to focus on the first time he came so that they focus on the second time he's coming. All right, that's interesting. Uh, it, it, now, now, none of that is in the Bible in terms of having to do it or the, the church doing it. Um, But why don't we seem to have any of that stuff that most other churches do? Well, generally, the reason I give is that because we really don't know. We really don't know when Jesus was born. We don't know the exact day. In fact, we're a little shaky on the year, if you want to get really into it. In fact, there's no indication that the first church celebrated Christmas uh, if you go back and study history and look at any of that, uh, it seems that the first time that there's a recorded celebration of the nativity or the, the birth of Jesus uh, is in Rome in 336. So there was several hundred years, that pretty much a gap in terms of that celebration. The first record time it was called Christmas or Christ Mass was in 1038. So another 700 years before that term was even used. So as a church that really wants to be in the word and just be back to what the Bible says and very simple and just stick to what it says, we don't do a lot of the stuff that you might normally see done. Now, I need to be careful to say here, we're not judging anyone who does, okay? But just for our sake, you may have a question about why we don't or, you know, where's all of the stuff that you normally will see. And 
that's kind of it. The Bible doesn't say very much about the date. And I think there's a reason for that. Because human beings tend to put a lot of focus on the date, you know. And, and we can for, get so obsessed with the date that we kind of forget the, the meaning behind all of this. So I, I personally think that's why we have no indication in the scriptures when Jesus was born. Keeps our focus in the right place. However, the Bible has a lot to say about the incarnation of Jesus. The incarnation, mean, meaning in the flesh. The word becoming flesh. That is a momentous event in human history. In fact, we, we sort of set our calendar by it. it it's so, even people who don't want to call the year 2022 Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, they want to call it before the common era. But my question is, what started the common era? What uncommon event started this new era? And of course, they, if they're being honest, have to acknowledge that it was the centerpiece of human history. He, Jesus the Christ, was no ordinary man. He was the son of the living God. And the Bible has a lot to say about when he came into our world. And so I think to not talk about that story is in fact unbiblical. We ignore a good section of scripture to leave that out. So this study, we're not going to focus so much on when he was born. We're going to focus on why he was born. And why he was born matters a whole lot more than when he was born. And so we're going to be looking at the story of the incarnation according to the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John. And we're going to be studying in the next three weeks uh, different sections from the beginning of John's account. Now our key text is going to be John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to ask you all to stand at this time. I know you're in your Bibles and that's good. Go ahead and stand though. I'd like you to stand and ask you to read the Word of God from John 1, 1 through 5 together with me. And you can read it from on the screen from the ESV. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made through Him... And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. You may be seated. As we consider the very precious promises given to us from John's account, you'll note a couple things. First, John's gospel starts a little bit differently than the other gospel and the other three gospels. John kind of is a little bit different. If you like something a little bit different, the gospel of John is a great reading. There's a couple in Matthew and Luke where they begin with the genealogy. They start with the, the attributes of Jesus that the Jews would have looked to to prove that he was a descendant of Abraham or to prove that he was fully a descendant of Adam. But John's account is a little different. It doesn't start with the genealogy. We don't get none of the typical story. We don't hear about 
Mary and Joseph and the inn and the shepherds. We, we don't get that picture. Instead, John's focus is much, much larger. Now, go back to the first part of this. John begins by showing that Jesus Christ is first of all. He hearkens back in this phrase, in the beginning. Now, if you don't know the Bible, if you're not familiar with the Bible, I would still guess that you're familiar with the phrase, in the beginning. The first three words of Genesis, the the, the first three words that kick off the whole narrative of the story of God and man. And John, he goes back farther than Abraham. He goes back farther than Adam. He goes all the way back to the beginning. He says that we are going to be a part of a story that's much, much larger. In Colossians chapter 1, if you want to follow along, our primary text will be John chapter 1, but Colossians chapter 1 says this concerning Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, you have to start to stop to think about that. When Paul writes that he is the image of the invisible, those two things don't seem to go together. How do you have an image of something that's invisible? That's what Paul's getting at when he's talking about the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is where it starts. He is where it begins. The fourth word is was. In the beginning was. To remind us that before anything was, Jesus was. In John chapter 8, he's arguing with the leaders of the day, the religious leaders, And they will take and they'll say, well, prove to us that you're a descendant of Abraham. And Jesus will say, before Abraham was, I am. He was reminding them that that his beginning was much more than our beginning. Before anything was, he was. And so in these first four words, we see and understand that Jesus is both fully God as well as fully man. Now, you ask me to explain how can someone be fully God and fully man, and I say to you, I cannot. (laughs) I can't wrap my mind around how exactly that works. But if we back up and we think, two Gospels talk about the human genealogy of Jesus, that's Matthew and Luke, but John has no genealogy because deity has no genealogy. You and I have a birth date, a beginning. If you go to cemetery, you'll see the beginning date and the end date. And there's an old poem about the dash and what you do with the dash between the two dates. But you see, Jesus, he never had a beginning. And he doesn't have an end. And so trying to understand that, John helps us by not putting in a genealogy. Because deity has no genealogy. But then, John uses an interesting descriptor. He says, in the beginning was the word. The word there for word in the original text is the word logos, or logos, depending on how you pronounce it. 
But this word was known by both the Jews as well as the Gentiles. Religious people as with a religious people. It didn't matter. Logos was a well-understood term. It was used in both faith as well as philosophy. It would have been used in the temple, but it also would have been used on Mars Hill. Logos was this idea of the divine mind, divine reason, all wisdom. I couldn't really, just trying to think about how to explain this. We all know people that are supremely intelligent in one specific area. They're really good at engineering. They're a fabulous artist. They're a a world-class musician. Uh, they, They are exceptional. But no matter how good they are, we can always think that there's somebody even better. You get somebody who's sort of at the top of whatever area that is, they are considered the best of the best. Professional athletes get paid millions of dollars to play games. But they don't just play games like you and I play games at family camp. They play games on a world-class level. And to get to that level, you have to surpass all the other people who are really good at playing games too. So when we think of logos, we're thinking of a very comprehensive idea. The best, the ultimate, the supreme wisdom of all wisdom, the supreme truth of all truth. It's even hard to get close to that, but that's my best human explanation. If you can imagine someone who is the greatest in every single category. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not super into sports. I don't know a lot about it, so I might mess this illustration up. But back in my day, when I was growing up, I can remember the uh, advertising campaign Bono's. And I'm talking about Bo Jackson, who's a tremendous athlete and skilled in different levels, football as well as baseball. That's, that's an exceptional thing. When we talk about in the beginning was the word, we're talking about John is using a term that says this is something that is the supreme of all the supremes, the best of all the bests, the truth of all truths is trying to what is get to. Logos is God's powerful self-expression in all creation, wisdom, philosophy, prophecy, and even in Revelation. Think about this for just a second. In Genesis chapter 1, we already referred to it. In Genesis 1 verse 3, the scripture says, And God said, let there be light. And what does it say after that? And there was light. The power of God's word is this, to speak it into being. Now now my words have power and your words have power too. Uh, Words are the ability to connect one mind to another. If I, in the middle of giving a lesson, start talking about delicious chicken sandwiches, all of a sudden, you have in your mind a picture. Maybe you can taste it. Maybe you'll be there tomorrow at 6 a.m. You, I have committed to you or transmitted to you an idea, a picture. But God's word is even more powerful than that. Because it, it doesn't just transmit the idea. It, it translates something into being. God said there was light, and there was. That's the logos. That's not just the supreme of all supremes, the best of all the best. That's power beyond our understanding. Turn to Psalm 33, verse 6, if you're following along. The psalmist 
speaks of the steadfast love of the Lord. Song that we sing about. But then he writes in verse 6 something that I think is pertinent to our study. He says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. You see, everything that we know and understand, everything that we can see, hear, touch, taste, smell, was all created and begun by his word. That's the power of the Logos. In the beginning, you see, was the word. Here, the word refers to more than just a spoken word, but the word refers to Jesus himself. You say, wait a second. That was all the way back in Genesis. How are we talking about Jesus here? Well, that's what John's getting at. Is that John's bigger than just the 30, or Jesus is bigger than just the 33 years he lived on earth. And we know this because of what he writes next. He says, he was in, uh, Jesus was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word, Jesus, was an intimate fellowship with the Father. He and God were one. He and the Holy Spirit were one. In Genesis where he says, let us make man, Jesus was right there. And yet Jesus freely gave up when he came into the world. He freely gave up his heavenly status to take on human form. Yeah, I know, it's exciting. The incarnation, it really is. The incarnation is the story of deity putting on DNA. Now, for you and I, that's exciting. <laughs> that's really great news. But from a, from a deity perspective, that was a significant downgrade. We all like upgrades, right? You know, once a year, he's, Apple compels you that the, the 14 is way, way better than the 13. You need to buy another one. That's an upgrade, right? Uh, when you go and you travel somewhere and you get a rental car, you're not hoping that the sweet lady at the desk gives you a downgrade and puts you into a little, you know, two-seater whatever. You're hoping for an upgrade, something with more seats and more room and a little more classy or more comfortable. Well, when the deity stepped into our world, he took on a significant downsize. And it says that even though he did that, He was still God. He was still God in the flesh. Even though he was incarnate in the flesh for 33 years, he didn't cease to become God. Philippians chapter 2 says, Though he was very in his very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He was still God. He just didn't take hold of all the perks and all the benefits that he would have in being God. Fully omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Colossians, back to the book of Colossians. Paul writes these words, In him, the, full, the whole fullness of God, the whole fullness of deity, some translations say, dwells bodily. Again, how do we wrap our minds around how someone can can step into flesh, be physical, human, breathe like we do, have a heartbeat like we do, taste, get tired like we do? I don't fully understand that, but the scripture tells us that it's true. We don't have to fully understand it for it to be true. 
Next, John writes this. Not only is he the God in flesh, but he is at the center. He says, all things were made through him. Now, we already said Jesus was at creation. But this reminds us that he was involved in creating everything. Every quark, every atom, every cell, every planet, every star, every black hole, every galaxy was in his mind. Every plant, every animal, every fish, every bird, every single-celled organism, every single amoeba, the organisms that we haven't even discovered yet, Jesus was there at their creation. All forces and energies and lights and matter and antimatter were in the mind of Christ. Every person, great and small, every angel, good and evil, all, all of it, including you, was in the mind of God and in the mind of Christ at creation. He is not just the reason for the season. You might hear that phrase used. He's the reason for the season. He's not just the reason for the season. He's the reason for it all. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I want you to turn there. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He goes on to talk about the preeminence of Christ And the Apostle Paul writes these words, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. But catch this next part. All things were created through him and for him. That tells us something else. It wasn't just that he was there, but it was all centered. Why are we doing this? Why are we creating this? Why are we making these galaxies and stars? Why are we going to create these human beings? It's all for him, Paul writes in Colossians 1. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, the story of the incarnation is so much more than the story of a tiny baby in a manger. So much more. And if we limit it to that, we're missing the point. And that's what John's trying to get us to. He's not just the reason for the season. He's the reason for it all. But finally, John writes this. He says that Jesus is life and light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, these two terms are used interchangeably in John, but John uses them a lot. In fact, he will use the term life 36 times, far more than any other book in the New Testament. You know some of those verses. John 3, 15, 16. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Skip 14 chapters over. John 17 verse 3. This is eternal life that you know the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, Jesus isn't just crucial to life on earth. 
He's not just the reason that you have breath in your lungs and that we have atmosphere in our world. Jesus is the reason for life eternal. Not just life on earth, but life eternal is the point that John's trying to make. Then he talks about this term light. Jesus is the light of the world. Now, if you think about it from a scientific perspective, not a scientist here, but as far as I know, all life requires light in some form. We've got to have light, and we've got to have light before we have life. Jesus is both our light and our life. In John chapter 1, verse 9, John writes this, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John chapter 9, verse 5, he writes, As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When we think about this, it's a wonderful picture, and it gives us beautiful hope and a wonderful promise, and it's this. We finish with this promise. From John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, the last sentence of the scripture. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus uses a lot of light and darkness. I'm sorry, John uses a lot of light and darkness in his gospel. In fact, if you want to, if you're interested in the study, I was going to give it to you this morning, but actually I'm just going to give it to you tonight at our Sunday night study about how John uses life and light and darkness interchangeably. We'll study that tonight at 6 o'clock if you want to join us. But the point is this. When Jesus came into the world, it was a pretty dark place. Not long after he was born, King Herod slaughtered every single baby that was two years old and under. It was a dark place. There was a lot of darkness in the world. It's easy to think that our world seems like a pretty dark place right now, doesn't it? I was thinking about here in Kansas, we had this terrible bill approving abortion. I thought, man, no one, no one will surely, everyone can get behind approving of life of the mother, life of the baby. And they rejected it two to one. And I wept. I thought, world's a pretty dark place right now. Then I was reminded of John chapter 1, verse 5. Light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Our leaders on the right and the left, just this very week, approved a something that the so-called Respect of Marriage Act, which will go after people of sincerely held religious beliefs if they believe that marriage is between a man and a woman exclusively. I think about the implications for me, and I think about the implications for you at your workplaces, and I get worried. And I think the world's a pretty dark place right now. Then I'm given hope because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And I can just flip through my news app and I can look at all of the bad news and I can get frustrated on many levels, get fearful on many levels, get angry on many levels. 
Because the dark seems pretty dark. And then I go back to John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that's the good news. It's no matter how dark it gets, it can't overcome the light. You can fill a stadium full of darkness, and it's overpowered by one single solitary candle. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And maybe your world is pretty dark these days. Maybe the holidays are a hard time. Maybe you've lost someone. Maybe it's, I don't know what the darkness might be, but it can seem pretty dark. And I offer you this message of hope, and it's this. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The darkest of darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus. And that's the good news. No matter how dark it gets, it can't overcome the light. Now, as we finish, I want to offer you an opportunity, a gift, really. The gift that was given to all men at the cross. That same light, that same life, would give all of that up and go to the cross, one of the darkest days on planet Earth. And he gave that all up for you. And he offered you the opportunity for light and life. Now, he won't force that on you. You've got to want that. He wants that to, you to have the light and to have the life, but you have to want that too. If you do want that, we'd be happy to show you exactly what Jesus said to do. That's all we'll do at a simple church like Northside. We will show you what Jesus said to do. If you're ready to put on Christ, we're happy to help you with that. If you're ready, and you, if you need some help and prayer in your walk with Christ, maybe you've been overcome by the darkness of these days. Maybe you've become over the, overcome by the darkness in your life. May our shepherds gently and lovingly remind you of the light, which is not overcome by the darkness. If you have a spiritual need to put on Christ or to grow in your journey and your walk with Christ, uh, right now as we sing this song, I want to invite you to head to the back. Our shepherds will be there and they'll await you and they'll be happy to pray with you. They'll be happy to show you what you need to do to put on Christ, to put on the light and the life of God. Um, may we not forget, may we hold on to that no matter how dark the world gets, it cannot nor never will it overcome the light. When we follow Jesus and we live according to his ways, we are walking in victory, as John calls us later, to walk in the light as he is in the light. If you have a spiritual need, you can come at this time. Brother Charles will lead us in a song, and you can head to the back at this time.